will be in John 5, 19 through 47. We're calling this message tonight, Witnesses Called Forth, and you'll see what I mean when we get there. John 5, these are the words of God. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in him who sent me. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in mine in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Our Father and good God, we gather tonight as your assembly holy and consecrated for your grand purpose of restoring all things. We acknowledge that at times we fail to take this calling seriously and therefore ask and pray for your spirit to help us. We come now to hear from your law word so that we are given vision for life. So please help us to see properly. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. So at this point in our journey, 
through John's gospel narrative, we need to stop and, and consider what's actually being said. What's actually being said. We are walking down a road, and there are signs or testimonies there along the way. And these miracles and teachings from Jesus, they serve as road signs. So think of yourself walking down a road, and they are road signs. And these road signs mean that we need to be mindful, frankly, of the incredulous nature of what we're reading. We need to not be impressed with the signs. We need to be impressed with where the signs take us. That's the point of John's gospel. You see, many times when we approach the Bible, we find ourselves yawning and we find ourselves inattentive. After all, we've heard this sort of thing before, right? But try and see this as though it was the first time you've ever read it or even the second time you've ever read it. Familiarity may not have yet brought you to contempt, but it may have you dropped, off, dropped you off at Distractedville, and that's not really helpful either. So recall for a minute what we've learned so far. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, right? The Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Word dwelt among us. He literally tabernacled in our presence. This Word created all things, and this Word touched down on the very earth that He created. The word was rejected by men who prefer their deep-seated lusts and idolatrous fancies. But for those who came to him, who were born like him, right, that is, born from above, they participated in this light because the light was the life of men. See, and John the forerunner, he testified in a lawsuit that this was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is a great lawsuit. Jesus' coming is a great lawsuit. It is a lawsuit against men who have preferred darkness. And John the foreigner testified. He testified that this was the Lamb of God. This Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. This word also brought new wine to replace the old stale wine of the old stale order of things. As a tabernacle and the temple, this word priest, come, he came to the actual temple and he found it to be unclean and worthy of divine judgment. The light of the world came to a man, Nicodemus, in darkness at night, and he taught him about this ginormous implication, the ginormous implications of what it means to be born again. But being born again is about regeneration, not generation. It's about the spirit violently, we might say, apprehending a man's cold, dead heart and bring, bringing new, fresh fountains of spring water that flows out of him. That's what this miracle means. In fact, it is water for all of life, we said. And the Samaritan woman at the well was the first to experience it all. Having reordered the lives of many, many people, Jesus continues to demonstrate what it means to be renovated by the Spirit. What does it mean to be Spirit-filled? That's the question we need to think about throughout John's Gospel. Jesus has proven himself to be the sovereign Lord of the Sabbath, and in both the healing of the nobleman's son and the nameless man by the pool of Bethesda, Jesus brings it all to a head with the religious leaders. They're frustrated. They're anger, angry. 
the old stagnant, stale water of Judaism, which had been basically commandeered by the religious phonies in Jerusalem. We'll call them the religious, uh, the power religionists. This water had to be changed out. Something different had to happen, and only Jesus could do the changing. The sheep of Israel are suffering, and this great shepherd has now come to bring abundant life. But the question that we have to ask tonight is this. What might this sort of thing look like? What might this sort of thing actually look like? Well, John is telling us if we'd only pause and consider. So I ask you tonight, will you be attentive? Will you pay close attention to what John is telling us? Now, give you, remember the context of what we've been talking about. All right, The healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. The man by the pool had been sick how many years? Do you remember? 38 years. He had been sick 38 years, and what we didn't talk about last week is that this was, in fact, the exact same amount of time that Israel was in the wilderness. 38 years, according to Deuteronomy 2, verse 14. Now, this isn't some sort of random information. The man's problem, the man's problem as he sees it, is that he can't go through the waters, right? Remember, he said, no one will take me. When I try to get up into the water to be healed, somebody else comes in front of me. He wants to get into the waters, but he can't. This is, this is a resounding message in John's mind. This man is stuck in the wilderness. He can't go through the waters. See, he, he can't get to the promised land because he can't even get to the water. This man is Israel stuck in the wilderness again. That's who Jesus has come to confront. The man is stuck in the wilderness, and Moses and the purification of defunct Judaism can't get him there. Now remember, Moses did not take Israel into the promised land. Who led the way? Joshua. Joshua led the way. Jesus is Joshua. And the only way for the man to pass through the waters is to partake of the water that Jesus gives, the same water that Jesus offered to the, to the woman of Samaria. Now, of course, as we saw last week, the religious leaders were angry with Jesus. They were furious because this healing took place, gasp, on the Sabbath. As men of the wilderness, the leaders of this now obsolete Jerusalem do not see that going to Jesus is inheriting the promised land and now entering true rest, which is what the Sabbath was to represent and does represent. So to refuse Jesus is to refuse the Sabbath, and to refuse Sabbath rest is to essentially perpetuate an, in, an impotent um, wandering in the wilderness. So the lame man, we don't know his name, was by the pool. The lame man, he was essentially happy to wander in the wilderness. He had come to grips with the fact that he, for 38 years, has been in this condition and there's no way out. See, apart from Christ, listen, apart from Christ, men prefer their misery. Think about the last time you've been miserable. Is it not, it's sort of the misery loves company thing, but it's, it's not even that too. Misery loves itself. Apart from Christ, men will always prefer their misery. They will always prefer it because Jesus challenges your misery. He pulls you out of your misery. Jesus brings comfort to you through his Holy Spirit. So apart from him, men are always going to prefer their, their apathy, their misery. See, they prefer the wilderness, but of course this will not do. Jesus heals the man 
tells the man, get up and walk, pick up your mat, your pallet, and walk. So Jesus demonstrates that he's the giver of life and he's the judge of all men. That's how we should read that text. Now, the healing itself, we know, made the religious leaders quite angry, and yet Jesus responds with something, something cryptic. We talked about it a little bit last week. What does Jesus say in response to their accusation? Well, he tells us in verse 17 of chapter 5, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. My father is working, and Jesus said, and I am working. See, Jesus assumes the burden of creational authority and sovereignty. That's what that means. He assumes the burden. The burden is on his father to have creational authority over the universe. Jesus assumes that burden. He takes that yoke on himself. He takes on the yoke of of creational sovereignty, creational authority. But to do so in the minds of these men is completely and utterly blasphemous. To make oneself equal to God in, in Scripture was a, bl- a blasphemous capital offense. And the section before us is Jesus' defense of his action. And while the leaders think that they are going to put Jesus on trial, the reality is they are the ones being put on trial. And guess what? Jesus is the judge. Now, if you, if you recall from last week, I mentioned that the work that Jesus sees his Father doing, that the very work he's taking on himself is the giving of life and the judgment of man. And I didn't just make that up. I see that in this text tonight. When, when you consider what, because Jesus is giving us a narrative and he's explaining what he just had done. He's explaining his healing and answering his, um, his very uh, angry interlocutors. <laughs> so, Let's just summarize the text. I'm not going to read it all again. It's a long passage. So the first section, we learn all about Jesus' authority, particularly where it comes from. If Jesus is going to walk around and have this authority, think of yourself in that moment too as a Christian. If you're going to walk around and have authority, where is the origin of that authority? And all of us in this room have authority. We do. We have delegated um, authority given to us by God. We'll get to that though. So this is his response to the accusation brought to him from the religious leaders who think that he's making himself equal with God. They think that that's what he's making himself do. Is Jesus equal with God? It's sort of a trick question, because now we're talking about the Trinity. Is he equal with God? Well, he tells us he has his authority. So yes, he is God, but is he equal with God? Well, no. Jesus is the Son of God taken on human flesh. He's distinct from the Father. He's distinct from the Son. So when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, we have to sort of navigate some of these things, especially in this passage and later on in John's Gospel. So we learn that the Son can do nothing of himself, that is, according to his own will, but rather he does what the Father does. That's verse 19. This is because there is a love that the Father has for the Son, and because the Father reveals to the Son all that he's doing. Now, because of this, the Father will continue to demonstrate greater works to the Son so that the religious leaders will marvel. That's verse 20. The Father raises the dead, the Father gives light, and so does Jesus, um, life rather, and so does, so does the Son. 
And this always happens in terms of God's terms, not man's terms. That's verse 21. The issue of judgment, we'll come back to this too, but the issue of judgment, however, is given to the Son, and this is to reap a reward of honor given to the Son and the Father. That's the the train of thought in verse 22 and 23. Those who do not honor the Son, though, do not honor the Father who sent the Son. So the testimony of Jesus, therefore, means that those who hear His word and those who believe in the Father who sent the Son, that's the person who has eternal life. Okay? So, I want... (laughs) This is just a quick sidebar. When we talk about cults, like Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and, and, and people say, well, they believe in Jesus. Um, I've had this discussion before with Mormons. Well, yeah, we believe in Jesus. He's our Savior. He's the only way we can be saved. What you're not to do is detach the Son from the Father. You see it in the text? Don't, they're linked. The Trinity is not at odds. The three persons of the Trinity are always working harmoniously. You cannot but say that you believe in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins if that means also with that confession you have rejected the Trinity. So our response to a Mormon would be, no, you don't have the right Jesus. You have a Jesus who does not have a father who he's co-equal with in terms of divinity but also distinct from in terms of personhood. So... That's a very tricky, we could talk about that for hours, I'm sure, but that's a different discussion. So you, the person has eternal life who believes and honors the son because that's honoring the father. So it's a package deal. You can't just take Jesus out of the Trinity. <laughs> so this person, the person who has eternal life, verse 24, says that they don't come into, into judgment, but they pass from death to life. In other words, the great divide in history has come. When I say that Jesus' incarnation and his coming was like a covenant lawsuit, that's what I'm talking about. This is a great divide in the middle of history, the beginning of the separation of the sheep and goats, which culminates in the great final judgment. So the world is not going to be condemned by Christ right now because it's condemned already. Remember John 3, 17 and 18. He didn't come to condemn the world because it's already condemned. He came to save the world, to undo it. So the judgment is here. The day of sifting through all things has now arrived. Jesus is going to appraise all peoples, all institutions, all things are now on the table for judgment because he is the light shining on that which is condemned. Now because of all of this, there are two resurrections and this lines up, I believe, what we see in Revelation 20 in this passage here. So verse 25 would be the first resurrection. And then the one talked about down in verse um, 28 would be the second resurrection, that being the resurrection at the end of history. So there's an hour that is coming, which is now here, verse 25. Note that in your text. It's now here already. Jesus says, When those who are dead, they will hear the voice of their shepherd, the Son of God, and they will live. They will live. This is the new birth set forth here in the ministry of Christ. The Father is the possessor of life because he has life in himself. God is life by very definition in and of himself. 
And because it is true of the Father, we also know that it's now true of the Son. He too, in verse 26, has life in himself. Now because of this fact, Jesus is given authority from the Father to execute judgment. Jesus Christ is executing judgment, and that's based on the fact that he's the Son of Man, verse 27. By the way, in the Greek, there is a definite article there. So the NASB chooses to translate it as the Son of Man. You really properly could say a Son of Man. But it's very specific, and that's because it's a reference to Daniel 7, which John read and we'll come back to later. So Jesus warns, an hour is coming when tombs will open at the sound of his voice. Mankind will be raised. Jesus affirms the doctrine of resurrection. It's a Jewish doctrine. He didn't just invent it. It is in the Old Testament, Daniel 12. And the sheep and the goats will finally and fully be separated. Those who are in Christ are raised to new life and, and, and new deeds. Those things, you will have resurrection life. But those are, who are not in Christ, they are raised to judgment because of their wicked deeds, because of their lawlessness, their wickedness. That's 28 and 29. So Jesus does nothing of his own initiative, he says in the passage. He listens to the Father, he judges accordingly, and his judgment is just and righteous because it's not about his will, he says, but the Father's perfect will, verse 30. And yet Jesus himself does not bring forth his own testimony, for that fails the test of biblical law. We here who hold the banner of theonomy proudly... <laughs> We understand God's law to rest on two or three witnesses. That is tremendously important when we talk about any sort of adjudication process for anything, whether it be a, a crime or a debacle between brothers and sisters. We need to be able to have due process. That's a biblical concept. But Jesus says he knows that. His own testimony alone is not going to function. Remember, this is a lawsuit. He's in the court. They think the court is, he's putting, being put on trial, but actually he's putting them on trial. That's verse 31. Verse 32, the father gives witness in this trial, and the father's witness and testimony is true. But there are other witnesses that are called forth. Other witnesses who are coming to this great courtroom, this lawsuit, to, to give witness. John the forerunner. Verse 33. Jesus doesn't have testimony, though, that rests purely on men, verse 34. But John is described as a lamp. He shined, but now that light is giving way to the true light of the world, verse 35. More witnesses are called forth in this courtroom. There is a greater testimony and a greater witness to who Jesus is that is greater than John the forerunner, and that is the works that the Father has given to Jesus. They testify and give credence to Jesus, verse 36. Think about it for a second. He just raised a man who was crippled and lame for 38 years. That is a testimony, if there ever was one. The Father they claim to worship, the religious leaders, the Father that they claim to worship is the Father who sent Jesus, but the Father, he gives witness to the person of Jesus. But they haven't heard the Father's voice, and they haven't seen him. Verse 37. He, Jesus turns the tables in the, in the lawsuit. Not only haven't they heard him, they don't have his word abiding in them because they reject Christ and they don't believe in him. Verse 38. And yet another witness steps forward to defend the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The Scriptures 
The scriptures are a witness and a testimony. The leaders think that just because they have the Hebrew scriptures, that they have eternal life. But one thing is missing. They don't see that the scriptures testify about Jesus. Verse 39. Their stiff-necked obstinance is such that they won't come to Christ. Verse 40. Their pride is too much. Christ doesn't receive the glory, the doxa, from men. Verse 41. He knows them, and they don't know God, nor do they have the love of God in them. Verse 42. Jesus came in the name of the Father, but they don't receive Him. They will, however. They will receive others who come in their own name, thus compromising biblical law. And they'll trust in His self-attesting testimony, but not the testimony that Jesus gives. Verse 43. The reason that the leaders won't believe is because they are not concerned ultimately with God's glory. But instead, they long for the glory that comes from man. Jesus doesn't need to bring an accusation against them because even Moses accuses them. Verse 45. If they truly understood and believed Moses, they would believe in Jesus. And yet they don't believe his writings. How are they going to believe in Christ's words? You see the interaction? It's almost like lawyers bantering back and forth. There's all this talk of witness and testimony and they want to put Jesus on trial they want to put him to death they're angry and frustrated but Jesus brings forth his witnesses he his case is stronger and in fact toward the end he pretty much seals the deal they won't even believe Moses how are they going to believe in his words see unique to John's gospel we have here this lengthy testimony from the lips of Jesus the son of God In this text, we learn that Jesus is not only the Son of God, He's the Son of Man. He is fully divine. He is fully human. He's the second person of the triune God with flesh added to His divine nature. So He is, according to the Council of Chalcedon, which we affirm here as Christians, He is one person with two natures. One person, two natures. As Son of God, He is unique He has this unique sonship to the Father. As Son of Man, He has the full force of humanity put on His person. This Son of Man, according to Deuteronomy, or excuse me, Daniel 7, this Son of Man was given authority. He was given dominion. And part of the dominion that Jesus exercises is the conquering of His enemies. Now think about this. He was given dominion and glory. You read that text. He was given dominion and glory and authority and power for what end? Well, Daniel 7.14 is key. That all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve Him. See, the purpose of Christ's Father-given dominion is to save the world. All peoples, nations, and languages are to be brought underneath His sovereign lordship and care. So know that. Especially to, when we see the news of the, the Virginia Democratic Party falling into pieces. God, God, um, God's intention is to, to rescue all of this, to save the world. He is, his Father-given dominion is to save the world. And, and Christ's enemies, then, are a footstool, we know in Scripture. But what you and I need to know is that we are the tools of that footstool shaping. <laughs> We are utilized as God's people to do the the work of making a footstool. We are to take enemies down. Now that obviously means something other than, you know, grab your guns and go to work. 
we are to conquer these ideas through the gospel, through the preaching and proclamation of the gospel. Something that we need to remember is that when Jesus came, he came to dethrone sin, Satan, and death. Behind all the miracles and behind all the interactions thus far lies behind these things. That's what the old order gives us. But Christ came, and his decisive victory at the cross was the very means of this dethronement of Satan, sin, and death. But we also have to keep in mind that this dethronement of sin was also the time of his enthronement. These two things work together. The dethronement of sin is the enthronement of Christ. The dethronement of Satan is the enthronement of King Jesus. So there's no room for two lords on this planet. There's no room for two kings. There's no room for two versions of a social order. There is Christ as Lord, Christ as King, and Christ's kingdom that is governed by his word, which means that witnesses must be called forth. And those witnesses are not in short supply. Now remember the problem which led to this discussion. Jesus took on himself the yoke of his father's activity. Okay, he's, He only does what he sees his father doing. His father's working, therefore Jesus is working. His father is giving life and bringing sovereign judgment in history, therefore Jesus is doing the same thing. Jesus is not at all unclear here. He's bringing forth water in life, restoration and healing. He is bringing with him a new creation, which means the old creation must pass away. The old way of doing things is now null and void. And there there is a new way of being being dispensed uh, on earth. See, some of you, and I'm guilty too, some of us are guilty of yawning at this. We sort of intellectually think, yeah, like this new creation, Jesus is bringing it, this new covenant, this new way of, of living the spirit living inside of us, the, the law of God taken from tablets and written on hearts. And we yawn at this stuff. We're sort of unimpressed anymore, especially in times when it seems like the pagans are ruling the hen house now. But we must not yawn at this. We should be in awe of this and, and allow it to, to fuel us, to fire us up so that we labor with a perfect view of Christ and his kingdom. See, there's this new thing happening, Jesus says, and what Jesus must do is he must bring witness and testimony to what he's doing so as to silence his critics. See, he is not debating the finer points of theology, though Jesus does have perfect theology. What Jesus is doing is bringing life, new life, and this water, this living water, is the Spirit's work in the hearts of men. For far too long, we have discredited and almost discouraged the work of the Spirit in in our lives. We, We almost treat Him as if He's not even present, as if He's not even functioning, as if that moment when you bit your tongue because you realized you were about to gossip or you were about to say something offensive or you were, uh, uh, as if that's not the Spirit leading you. He's present, church. He's present with you when you leave and he's present with us when we gather. He is here. See, the Spirit apprehends and arrests the soul of a man or woman, and he creates this flood of joy and glory that simply was not there before. It's not, it wasn't there before. And remember what I said at the very beginning. Do not be inattentive 
at what Jesus has come to do. Be stunned. Be amazed by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. See, what Jesus intends to do as the Son of Man is nothing short of a miracle. It's a miracle. You today who profess Christ have been changed by Christ. You are a miracle. God the Spirit, He tears the heart of stone out of us and He gives us a heart that a heart of flesh that beats with Christ's glory. We, we, it, it beats in rhythm with Christ. And what you must see this as is a movement from death to life. It's a resurrection. That's the analogy Jesus uses in verse 25. This, this new birth is a resurrection. You weren't lying there sick and Jesus healed you. You were dead and Jesus raised you. That's the work of the Spirit in your life. That's the analogy here. So it's that simple. The, the new birth is a resurrection. And, and this, this is Ezekiel's preaching to the valley of dry bones, if you recall, which incidentally, Ezekiel is called a son of man. That's the vision come to life. Dry bones coming to life. This preaching is the life-giving work of the gospel of the kingdom. And when this stuff is proclaimed and it's preached in our churches, which it's desperately needed in our churches today, when it's preached on the streets, when it's preached in your car, when you talk to yourself, right? Christians don't listen to themselves. They talk to themselves. That was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, you know, the whole, why are you downcast, oh my soul, hope in God? You're supposed to talk to yourself. You may be looked at weird, but... It is what it is. But when you preach this, this is what happens. God uses the Spirit-anointed declaration to call forth witnesses and thus bring judgment. Because listen, when all, when all of you have that moment, this is, so the, the, um, C.S. Lewis, the kill the lizard, um, we, we in our house have been talking more recently about killing the dragon. And when, when you fuss, it's a fussy dragon you have to slay. And so either you will slay it or mom and dad will. <laughs> and it's a sin that means to be put to death, right? Sort of Adam, Adam should have put a, put a boot to the serpent's head, but he didn't. We have to kill that dragon. And when you kill that dragon, you are bringing judgment. You are bringing spirit-anointed witness and testimony to that, whether it's to yourself or to, to someone on the street, that's part of gospel proclamation. So let me, let me try to say this another way, because this can be confusing. Jesus calls forth witnesses here because the religious leaders, they were the ones on trial. So, so when we go about being a light in a dying, dark world, we too have to remember that God is not in trial. on trial. You and I are not on trial. The world is on trial. So don't give that up in your apologetic. Don't give that up in your discourse. Don't give that up in your personal life. Don't apologize for bringing the truth of God's law word to bear on every situation, whether that's you spouses fighting with each other and you having to repent and deal with it. You have to bring adjudication. So, but, but know that we are no longer condemned in Christ. <laughs> the world, though, is condemned. They're the ones on trial. See, men and women who, who shake their fists at God in rebellion are the ones who are truly on trial. Not Jesus, not us. Our, our, uh, the jury's uh, it's already in. The verdict's in. We're not guilty because of Christ. That's a judicial sentencing that's taken care of. 
So Jesus isn't on trial, but Jesus is the one who brings life and he brings judgment, not the rebellious God-hater, which means that we are not to allow the God-hater to, to think that he or she is in the position of judgment. The religious leaders thought themselves to be in a position of judgment, but they were not. Jesus was. And that's what Jesus is ultimately, I think, teaching us here. They're not the judge. They cannot be because they're stumbling around in darkness. Jesus is the judge. It, the, I'll just say this. The fact that the church seems to have for a moment flared up when the late-term abortion laws were going around is, is pure evidence of a lack of discernment. We, we, we should not be excited about that. Oh, maybe the church will wake up. No, 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 no. The darkness has been hovering over the church for a long time because we haven't repented yet. So that's not... <laughs> That is not judging properly. That is not discerning properly. The world, we know that that's just consistent. It's, it's consistent with their worldview to say whether it's, you know, nine months before the child comes or 90 seconds after, why not? That's the consistent view. They're in darkness. They're stumbling around, fumbling around, and they can't see it. But Christ does, and we do in him. So Jesus is the judge, and because he is the Son of Man who, who, to whom dominion has been given, he's bringing forth this great judgment of the world, and that judgment is the cross. We're not there yet in John's Gospel, but the cross is the judgment. And what men need to do is to rid themselves of the chains of sin's dominion in Christ's atonement. See, Christ's atonement is judgment. When Jesus Christ was put on a cross... He was judged. He was condemned. The world issued their verdict. They said, it is over. This man must suffer. But what, who had the last word? God, raising Jesus from the dead. He validated who Christ is and who he was. See, Christ's atonement, that's the moment of judgment. It's the moment when God put an end to the legal authority that had been farmed out to Satan, to sin, and death. Which means that either we will accept the judgment of sin on the cross in the person of Christ. We, we will either accept that judgment or we will reject that judgment and then we will, we will face his wrath. And let me tell you, let me tell you this. This is largely misunderstood, largely misunderstood and nearly altogether forgotten in the church today. By and large, we have forgotten that part of what it means for Christ to be king in the here and the now is the judgment he brings on evil and wickedness today. We farm all this out to the end of the world where there's a judgment day. And we affirm the judgment day. We affirm that Christ the King will come and sort all things out. We affirm that. But what the church today fails to see, because they don't understand the covenant, we fail to see the judgment that Jesus Christ brings in, the legal authority of us to go forth in, in our proclamation of the gospel and bring a legal authority to the, to, the, to the issue. I don't know why we don't do this more. Maybe we should hear. But when you read the um, imprecatory psalms, when you read it and it's basically, you know, God, vindicate your name, destroy your enemies if you need to, you know, throw their faces against a rock. 
that's a that's a that's God's word for one, uh, a, a very paraphrased version. But it's God's view of His covenant in the world. God intends to enforce His covenant, and we don't enforce it when only when we remember communion, when we when we partake together. That is one aspect. But the covenant is to be enforced in all things, in all institutions, in all ways. See, God's plan of redemption is the revelation of his glory on earth in all things. And this includes the judgment given to you, Christians, as an extension of Christ's throne. We are an outpost of the heavenly courtroom. We are. And we've been told to judge all things, 1 Corinthians 2.15 says, to judge everything. And we have to think soberly uh, and, and respond to injustice and respond to wickedness. All right? So, part, I mean, that looks like a lot of different things. If, if your white friend says it's ridiculous there's a Black History Month, rebuke them because they're a fool. <laughs> you don't understand injustice. Anything, whether it's abortion, you name the injustice in our world, police brutality, whatever it is, the church of Jesus Christ has something to say because we've been tasked with judgment. We are to judge all things, all things all wickedness in the world. And the problems we face in our culture is on us, frankly. It's all on us. Just a few final thoughts here. Part of the way that Jesus brings that judgment is the naming and the shaming of evil and all of its pretended benefits. Exposing evil, Ephesians says. We have to name the evil. We have to shame the evil. We can't lose sight of the evilness of evil. And we must preach the gospel, yes, but preaching the gospel means bringing God's covenant to bear. We are to bring God's covenant to bear. It's no accident that Jesus said to us that we will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You guys are witnesses called forth. I'm a witness called forth to the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's no accident. We are witnesses who are called forth to defend and implement God's covenant in everything. And all of this at the heart is about sonship, really. True sonship, true being a true daughter and son of, of the king is learning to reproduce what we see in Christ because he reproduces what we see in the Father. So if you've seen Christ, guess what? You've seen the Father. If you've partaken of Christ, guess what? You've partaken of the Father. If you've tasted the glory of Jesus Christ and the beauty of salvation, guess what? You've tasted the glory of the Father. So to be a son and to be a daughter of the Father is to be in Christ. And only in Christ are we able to then learn from the Father. And only in Christ are we able to re reproduce what we see. Jesus saw his Father working and then he worked. You and I see Jesus Christ working, and what do we do? We work. That's the connection. The world's on trial. Christ sits as judge. And as his people, we are called to bring forth this testimony and to see to it that the world knows to whom it is it answers. And see to it that the world knows to whom it is they must look to in order to find hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne again. And we ask that your word would not return void. We ask and pray that we would be encouraged and spurred on towards love and obedience. Oftentimes we lose sight of the calling that you have placed on us. This lack of attentiveness is, is not your fault, but ours. We get lazy, we get bored, and that's because we think trifles will ultimately satisfy us. Help us to see that those trifles are 
to see what they are so that, so that we can be led by your spirit to repentance and thus be restored as sons and daughters of the King. We pray that you would keep the words of, of your law and the ethics of your law in our minds at all times and in our hearts at all times during this week. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.